for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Hey, today's conversation is largely about the business of food, about how people can create businesses that are sustainable, that make money, that provide a reasonable yield in a capitalist economy, but also can help people be healthy and can help save the planet. My guest is Tyler Mayoris, who is the CEO of Cool Beans, which is a recent startup that provides whole food plant-based flash frozen meals for people. And he's also a longtime veteran of the food industry. He was one of the early uh, movers and shakers behind Boca Burger, if you if you remember um, those products. Um, that was always fun for us uh, early vegans who wanted something that we could take to a barbecue that wouldn't fall into the grill. And we also talk about his interest and investments in indoor agriculture, which uh, kind of scares the hell out of me, honestly, for a lot of reasons. But also the, when, the way he talks about it, uh, I think you'll, you'll see that there's definitely a role for those kinds of technologies, even though I'm very suspicious of any sort of technology that's trying to solve a problem that was caused by another technology, um, kind of like Elon Musk wanting us to uh, you know, perhaps abandon the earth that we've screwed up for Mars so we can have a fresh start. Something there just doesn't sit right with me. Uh, but Tyler is a hell of a guy. He's a fascinating person to talk to. He has a lot of ideas, a lot of experience, and a lot of heart and a lot of commitment to making the world a better place. So I, I do offer some skeptical questions. We do go in a bunch of different directions, and I hope you find it a useful and valuable experience. So without further ado, Tyler Mayoris, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going we're to get into a lot of stuff about food, food production, um, marketing, agriculture, but first, um, let's get your bona fides out of the way. Um, who, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, for sure. So, um, Tyler Mayoris, I'm the CEO of Cool Beans, and I have been a longtime investor in the, the food and agriculture space. I started as a, I've been in private equity for about 20 plus years. I started as a generalist investing a lot of, across a lot of industries, but slowly over time migrated to food. And uh, one of my first deals that I did was Boca Burger, which is a, one of the early non-meat veggie burger companies. And um, that was a nice exit that we grew the company rapidly and then sold it to Kraft. And that gave me kind of the bug for the food industry. And um, more recently, I was with Advantage Capital and we were investing in food and agriculture companies in rural America. So non, in non-urban areas. And that was a little bit limiting in that we couldn't, uh, some of the very best companies are going to be, most of the very best companies are going to be around urban areas so they can get employees and et cetera. So that was a bit limiting, but I also on the side would invest in what, what I had migrated to was sustainable food and agriculture. And so with that specialty, most of those companies I would find were in urban areas. And so I was able to do those as an angel investor and really, you know, gave me a taste for the industry. And along that journey, I started learning about the animal, the the impact of animal agriculture on climate change. And that led me to go vegan four and a half years ago. And during that price process, it was also a very good 
beneficial health journey as I lost a lot of weight and improved all my biometric numbers and, and nutritional numbers. And, and then, um, but, but what I found as I went through that process was I was trying to eat whole food, plant-based whole food ingredients. And I just couldn't find it in the grocery store. So I was cooking a lot myself, but you know, everybody's got limited time for that. And I was freezing things and actually making, wrapping things into tortillas that I could freeze and then take to work. And that just sparked the idea that why isn't there a whole food plant-based product out there? Started talking to some friends of mine in the, in the industry and a couple other people saw it as a white space as well. And so there was a group of us that seed funded the company and started developing products back in 2008 was when the company was, 2018 was when the company was formed. And then we launched officially last year and for, started going on shelves in May of 2020. And what is the company? It's called Cool Beans. And we um, sell, we started with handheld wraps and they're basically whole food ingredients, beans, veggies, whole grains, and spices wrapped into a gluten-free tortilla and then flash frozen. So it locks in the nutrient value and um, makes for a better taste profile, the flash freezing process that that's used these days. And um, you cook them in, in the microwave or a toaster oven or an air fryer. And it takes very short period of time, you know, in a microwave, it's basically a two, two, two and a half minute process. And you've got something that's fresh, ready to eat and very clean ingredients for you in the whole food plant-based area. Gotcha. Well, there's, there's so many um, avenues I want to pursue just from that introduction. Um, I will, I will give a shout out to Boca Burger, uh, which was, that was, that was the first time that, uh, you know, people like me could go to a cookout and not worry about, like I used to buy (laughs) these like $6, you know, sunflower, right. bean, rice, oatmeal paste burgers. They, I mean, they were great. They were delicious, but you would just kiss them goodbye on the grill. Yeah, and for sure. Boca burger, like that, that sucker was going nowhere. That would last, you know, the, the hamburgers and the chicken could be in the embers and the, the Boca burger would still be on the grill. That's right. Like, yeah. that, was, that was kind of a game changer back in the day. Yeah, it was definitely one of the very first ones that tried to mimic meat, um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's a far cry from what's out there and available today. But, it, yeah, it was a very good product at the time. Okay. Um, so I'm also interested in your, you said you, um, you went vegan because of what you learned about animal ag and, and the climate. But most people who go vegan for environmental reasons don't go whole food plant-based. And I'm wondering what influenced you to go in that direction? Yeah, well, so when I decided to make the change, I, you know, I started with Meatless Monday and then um, that led to Vegan Monday and then Vegan Monday and Friday. And then ultimately, you know, in about a three month period, two month period, I was fully converted. But I, as I did that, I started to learn a lot more about the health benefits. So I'd watch Forks Over Knives and eating you alive and some of these great documentaries and all those doctors, when they talk about the benefits of a plant-based diet, they're always talking about a whole food plant-based diet. They're not talking about highly processed products that have a lot of oil to replace the fat that's, that's in animals, et cetera. 
And yet that's what most of the products are that are in the grocery store. And that was very frustrating to me. So that's, that's really why I wanted to go whole food plant-based. And what's interesting about it is I lost 25 pounds during that first year that I was whole food plant-based and honestly didn't even, I wasn't even dieting. It was a lifestyle change. I wasn't limiting calories. I was never hungry. I just ate when I wanted, but I was eating, you know, good and good food ingredients and, and the the pounds just shed away. So there's definitely benefits to it. If you, if you know what you're doing and and stick to it and, and you know, you don't have to be a hundred percent whole food plant-based because I think that's a very hard ideal. I, I, I encourage people to, you know, try to, try to get to 60, 70 to 80% whole food plant-based and you're going to get reap the benefits. Mm. And you, um, so it took you three months and you'd, you'd sort of, you started, I, I mean, I would say like on sort of ethical grounds, like this is like, this is a planet I want to live on. What was, what was the three month transition like? Were you like, you know, okay, I have a plan. I'm doing this rationally. Or was there like, gosh, I wish I were doing it faster. I, I can't, you know, I'm eating this salmon or this piece of chicken and I know it's going against my values. Like, how are you navigating yeah. the the process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it probably was two months, to be honest, because I, I first, the conference where I really learned about this was in October um, and came back to Chicago and did research myself to validate the statistics. They were saying it was 15% of greenhouse gases. I actually built the information up from the USDA data and EPA data, and I came up with 16 to 19% of all greenhouse gases caused by animal agriculture. So, um, and at the same time, I was learning about the um, kind of the Meatless Monday initiative. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with those folks. I can't remember the organization, but they, they were saying, look, you can dramatically reduce your carbon footprint by not eating meat several days a week or um, not eating meat before 6 p.m. or things like that. So I was kind of taking that tact at the beginning, really with the thought, um, okay, well, I need to re- reduce meat dramatically. And then as I went down that road, I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could do this vegan thing for a day and see what it's like, because I really didn't know what, what I would eat. I, I was going through this process and I'm thinking, hmm, if you take all dairy out and eggs, because at the time I was eating a lot of omelets and things like that, what would you what would you eat? What would you replace with? So it was really a learning experience. And doing it that way is a great way to find out, can I do this? So when you do that, you do a vegan Monday. Um, and, and all of a sudden you realize, holy shoot, excuse me, excuse my language. Holy cow, there is a lot of things you can eat and a lot of choices you can make at, at these restaurants around town and whatnot. So that's, that's why I did the process is you, you, I had to learn how to do it. And then I had to learn how to cook because I had never cooked before. And so mm. I was just grabbing res- recipes from one green planet, the one green planet app and different apps that had vegan options. And I was starting to make them. 
And that was a real learning experience too. So I had to know that I could do it before I could just jump into it wholeheartedly. You know, I really respect people that do jump in day one, I'm going vegan. Um, But if you don't know what you're doing, um, there's definitely an education process. Yeah, well, it sounds like you, you approach the process quite strategically. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So you'd be a good person to grow a company with that kind of... uh, That's right. That's right. Kind of how I think. Yeah. So I have another question. uh, And I want to talk about sort of, you know, private equity and investing and and capitalism and where all all that fits in. um, Since so much of that, you know, is used, is weaponized against health and the planet. Yeah. But like you said, you're an early investor in Boca Burger, which means you were selling to vegetarians and vegans yes. and you, you weren't one for, for many years. So were you seeing this just as like, this is white space. This is a market opportunity. Well, like here's a go, go ahead. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Cause uh, so interestingly in the nineties, when we did that Boca Burger deal, I was a vegetarian. I wasn't vegan. Um, And I had gone, I was a vegetarian for probably 10 years through the 90s. And I had done that Mm. primarily from an ethical standpoint um, and some diet and wanted to see, you know, how, how I, if I could do it, et cetera. And I just kind of kept doing it. What I found in that process and what ultimately led me to fall off the wagon with that was being a vegetarian as opposed to a vegan is not that beneficial from a health standpoint. Um, I actually gained weight during that process because I was eating a lot of pasta and cheese. Um, yeah. You know, and you'd get a you'd get a veggie sub from Subway, and it would and you'd put on six pieces of cheese on it. Well, that's not going to be beneficial health wise for anybody. And so that so ultimately, when we had our kids, um, sometime in the late 2000s and early, I mean, late 90s and early 2000s, I ended up just going back to eating certain, I, I didn't really eat red meat, but I ate chicken and fish because it was, we were cooking something for the family and it was too difficult to cook a lot of different things. And, and I wasn't really getting the health benefits. And I, you know, it, I don't know if you were like me, it sounds like based on your story, over the course of 20 years, I had just gained a little bit of weight every year. It was crazy. And I didn't even know I was obese, but I, I mean, I was, I had, I, you know, weighed at my peak, like 220 on a six foot frame, six foot one frame. That's just, that's your overweight, you know, and, and I didn't realize it at the time. And so that really was an eye opener to me that I could lose so much weight, 25 pounds, just changing my diet and not even limiting calories because I did so much limiting calories before that. And it was so painful and I would never keep any weight off. I tried low carb. I tried every diet possible and it never stayed off until I hit veganism. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but I come back to the idea of like, is there a difference being an investor in a market that you see, you know, here's growth potential versus an investor in a market that you say, like, I need this for myself. And of course, I'm going to do due diligence and do bottom up research and, and, you know, not throw money willy nilly. But when you're part of the market versus, you know, when, when it's sort of like, you know, Schrodinger's cat or something like, right. you're, 
you're the subject as well as the object. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting concept. I think I've always believed strongly in investing in what you know, that me trying to invest in, yeah, I don't know, a fashion business or something, I, I just don't know. And I, I wouldn't be able to really discern well what was right and what was wrong about a business. So I definitely think that having been vegetarian at the time, I knew the trends and I saw what people were doing and how they were kind of moving toward, and the whole idea with Boca Burger anyway, it was their whole strategy was not to be focused on vegans or plant-based only eaters. They really were focused on kind of like Beyond Meat Now, people that were trying to limit their meat consumption certain days of the week from a health perspective. And so I knew that that trend was building. Um, and just as now I could really see, so there, so my angel investments and, and, and our private equity investments were really focused around a few key areas. So there's certainly the plant-based, most of my portfolio is plant-based. There's two companies that are upcycling ingredients um, which means to limit food waste. So using what's been unused in the original manufacturing process. Um, and then indoor agriculture is another key area. So these are all just things that I knew very deeply. So I, I think there is benefit to getting in, being a user and understanding uh, the market really well to see where the trends are. But you do have to be careful because the, with both you and I, there's certainly some desire for in both of our minds to see the plant-based market grow and ultimately have 30% of the market be plant-based eaters, right? Um, because right. we know that it's better for climate, we know that it's better for health, and we know that it's better for animals. However, you can definitely get yourself crisscrossed from, from an investment perspective, if you're hoping for things to happen. And so you have to be very careful with that. Mm. So do you find that there are places where you have to think about compromise between returns and good? Um, yes and no. I think that an advantage, advantage capital is an impact investing organization. All they do is impact investing. So our fund was one element of that. The other part of the company invest uses new market tax credit and other kind of governmental programs to invest in good companies in bad neighborhoods. So it's a job story in underdeveloped or distressed areas of the country. So definitely impact oriented. I think based on advantages, returns, and, and based on several other impact investors, certainly all the people in the plant-based space, which have benefited from the whole plant-based movement market going up, um, but none of them have can't compromised on returns because you know the, they've, they've all got outsized returns because of some of the big successes. So I don't think you have to compromise returns. It's not like, yeah, we're going to get five we're going out in the market saying we're going to get five points less than everybody else because we're focused on the plant-based market. Um, mm -hmm. However, you do have to be cognizant of the fact that if you have very specialized rules, there is going to be a limit to the pool of companies you can look at. So if you were only going to look at female founders um, 
in highly sustainable food businesses, that's going to limit you and probably um, put, put a damper on the potential return just because you can only look at a smaller pool of companies, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So w- one of the things that I noticed, so I, I was part of a, of a startup and we had, you know, three or four very generous early backers, sort of, you know, somewhere between friends and family. Yeah. Uh, or been before, you know, before, before, well, sort of semi-angels. We didn't quite get up to the, the numbers we needed. Um, but like one of the things that I thought about is that if, if we're really successful, like rich people are going to get richer because by definition, rich people are the ones who can make the investments. And I'm wondering, are, there, are there any, you know, like, if I were to invest in something, it would be like, you know, a hundred bucks in somebody's local food cart. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't really have much of an impact because I don't, I don't have, you know, the money to, to kind of move the needle. Are there any movements or strategies or, or instruments, um, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, penny stocks or so, something for, for, for ordinary people who may have a couple Absolutely. hundred bucks or a couple thousand bucks to, to, to get in the ground floor and not, not need to be like, you know, a, a half a million dollar hedge fund person. Yeah, that absolutely there are. And what it's really the, an exciting part of the market right now. So um, the SEC changed the rules. It used to be that a company before it was public could only have 100 shareholders and limited partner partners or whatever you want to call them. But they could only have 100 and they all had to be accredited investors. And as a result, it was very limiting to how you could raise money and really was a, it was, it was stacked in the favor of big private equity and venture capital mm-hmm. firms. And what, what, but what's the definition of an accredited investor? An accredited investor is someone that has at least a million dollars of net worth or at least 200,000 of annual income. And it's a little bit uh-huh. higher if you, if you're including a spouse, if both, of, you know, if it's, if it's a couple married filing jointly. Got um, gotcha. So, so the 1%. Yeah, not quite the 1%. It's, it's probably, it's poor, probably more like five to 7%, but yeah, it's a smaller, it's a smaller subset for sure. Um, okay. But what's changed is now they, now they've increased that number. I think it's a thousand or it might be unlimited under certain circumstances. And, and it's allowed companies to do what's called crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding. So forever there's the Kickstarters of the world where you basically put in money just to get product. And that's not really equity. However, there are now four or five companies, including WeFunder, which is probably the largest, um, Republic.co and Start Engine, And there's a couple others that all allow you to invest in equity for as little as $100 of companies on their platform. And, and mm-hmm. the companies have been vetted. They have to provide two years worth of reviewed financials and they have to jump through a bunch of hoops. And then those companies, but they could be small companies. They could be companies that have, you know, one of, one of the companies I'm invested in is a company called Renewal Mill that basically takes the the leftover waste from making soy milk, oat milk, and tofu, and takes that waste, dehydrates it, dries it out, and creates a flour that's very nutrient dense, 
um, and happens to be gluten-free. And that flour then can be used either as a baking flour, which they sell as a baking flour, or it can also be made into things like brownies and other products. And so they sell those baking mixes. And so you're upcycling ingredient, you're limiting food waste. So it's a very advantageous story. It's a, it's a sustainability story. And it's two female founders. They were on Republic.co and they raised, I think, $150,000 on, on the platform of a bunch of small investors. And, and the company gets the benefit of the money, plus only having one line item on their cap table for Republic.co, even though Republic has aggregated maybe 200 investors under that flag. I see. Yeah, cool. so it's a really, it's and a is great- Is there anything happening? I'm starting to read. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and they have tech companies, they have food companies, they have fashion companies. It's really all across the board. But it's a great way, especially if you stick to what you know and you see trends that make a lot of sense. Um, that's a great, great way for you to get involved with early stage companies and benefit from them long term. Hmm. And I've been reading a lot about uh, SPACs. Is, yeah. is that a thing? And are they going to play a role in, in early stage investing in, in good companies like these? It's it's a huge thing. It's grown dramatically over the last year and, and the first I mean, half. Maybe maybe you could define it because I, I just know that I can yeah. I can throw out the acronym. <laughs> right. So they've been around for a long, long time, but they've recently been um, some rules were changed and they've been used much more um, easily of late. And what it is is somebody with some name cachet, whether it be celebrity or highly successful investor or former founders will raise public capital under a special purpose acquisition corp that they create with an objective in mind. They say, we're looking for tech companies that are unicorns, but not yet in the public market. Maybe their revenue, maybe their pre-revenue, maybe their revenue is not yet to the level that it could go public on its own or, um, or their fallen angels companies that kind of were good. Like we work is a great example, ha- had a kind of a run, looked like it was going to go public. Things, some things fell apart. Now it's regrouped itself, um, recapitalized. And now they're looking to merge with a SPAC to come to the public markets. And so what they do is they raise this capital from equity investors, typically large equity investors, you know, institutional investors. And then they use that capital to go out and reverse merge with a private company that wants to be public. So there are several of these companies that have really long windows, for instance, there's, I think, three companies that are in the air taxi business. So they basically want to be the Ubers of helicopters um, that will get you from Manhattan to JFK really quickly Uh um, versus taking an Uber across. And they'll do it maybe for 50 bucks instead of 20 bucks, what your Uber would be or 30 bucks or whatever it is. I don't know exactly the cost. But there's three of those companies that are going to merge, but they have no revenue right now because they're not yet approved by the um, um, the transport authority to actually Department of Transportation to actually start um, providing those flights to the public. 
So those things would need a lot more capital before they could actually be a viable product that could get in a, a viable operating company that could get public on its own. And so they go through a SPAC because it's a really good way. Um, and given how many companies, the limitation on becoming a public company was in Increased dramatically because of Sarbanes-Oxley after the last um, financial crisis, and so as a result of that, the number of public companies have gone down dramatically. And, and this is a way to get some of those people back out there. Um, and yeah, it's sure. good for a lot of different industries, like indoor agriculture's got two companies and um, a couple more that are talking to people. Um, there's a lot of areas that are going to be ripe for it. Gotcha. Let's let's. Uh detour into indoor agriculture before we talk about cool beans. When I think of indoor agriculture, um, I guess I'm thinking of like factories in Newark, New Jersey with like computers, um, you know, grow, growing, growing things the same way you might put to put a car together. Is, is that a, a correct image? Yeah. Well, there's two different parts. Uh, indoor agriculture has been around forever. First of all, it's been, and you know, if you think about the old, tomato farms under grown under glass, low, low rise type hothouses, basically that was indoor agriculture. Um, and it's just a way to grow without letting weather be a factor. However, what's, what's really changed and what has um, come on over the last 10 years is this concept of vertical farming, which means growing under led lights because the cost of led lights have come down dramatically and made it more economical to, to grow product. And so now you have, you, have combina- you have companies that are just greenhouses, you have companies that are hybrids of greenhouses and vertical farms, and you have straight vertical farms. And what's driving all this, and, and they're all gonna probably, you're gonna have elements of all three in the future, but it's going to suck up more and more of the total agricultural dollars because of two major factors. Number one, climate change is dramatically impacting the predictability and an ability to deliver produce from field to um, consumers um, because of these wild swings in weather. Secondly, desertification is happening all over our country because we use so many chemicals and we monoculture so much that we're killing the soil and the soil can't produce as much agriculture without having a lot of chemicals and NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium added to the soil. Um, and and they then they spray a lot of chemicals on it, and it just keeps killing the soil. So desertification is happening, which means there's less moisture in the soil, which means more less moisture is created in the air. And so you have less of the locally produced rainfall that you used to have and mists and things like that. Um, And that is then leading farmers and agricultural entities to suck more water out of the aquifers that are under places like California and Texas. And as a result, those aquifers are shrinking and the land is sinking. And so the, the balloon that is the aquifer is getting smaller down below. And so it can't fill up with as much water as it used to. So in the long term, we've got a water problem. And the idea of moving more indoors limits your the, the variability of weather and limits your risk of water 
in places like California and Texas and et cetera. And so that's why you're going to see more and more of it go, go indoors. And it's ultimately the price is coming down with indoor. And at some point it'll get to parity and it'll probably pass parity, especially when they include ultimately what will happen is you'll end up including solar and wind energy that power the led lights and then you will actually be cheaper than probably growing in a field mm. yeah it's interesting because when before you said that i was <laughs> very, very like i have really mixed feelings about this just without knowing much about it it's like um you know the earth is dying <laughs> And like Elon Musk's idea is, well, we better go to Mars as opposed to let's fix Earth. And it's like, you know, we're destroying our planet through um, through all the, the, you know, science and technology and industry that is causing all these things. And our solution is to like build factories with with LED lights that have to be yeah. manufactured and run. Mars, <laughs> like, just, they're, know, they're, I've done a lot of reading about that. And the problem with Mars is that the, so, the, the ground there has the, a very, and I can't remember what the chemical is, but they have a very high mineral content um, of, of one element that basically would make it a Superfund site in the U.S. And that's all over the planet. So you're basically moving to a Superfund site. And I don't think that makes any sense right. for any of us. But, but even just this idea that, you know, technology will save us. Like I'm suspicious yeah. of that since, you know, technology, we, you know, cars were going to save us from horses and you know, airplanes were, it's, um, well, I do think, what can you, what can, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I do think that indoor agriculture is going to be a saver for us for feeding the world. Because if we, if we rely on outdoor, we are going to have shortages in the future. There's no doubt about it because, you know, we, we've watched one of our companies that we're invested in that at, Advantage was called Shenandoah Growers, and they were the largest provider of fresh herbs in the country. Um, and when we invested in 2015, we were helping them, uh, along with a couple other equity groups, we were helping them make the transition to a hybrid approach of vertical, of indoor growing that was both vertical and greenhouse, as well as buying from outdoors. And they continued to buy basil and other things. But as we saw from 2015 through about 2019, every year in the fourth quarter, there was some huge swings in prices of these herbs that were grown outside because one area of the world or this hemisphere really had a wipeout of its crop because of climate change. And so we were seeing this every year and that's going to happen more and more. And as a result, we're going to have to use these technologies. And so we're going to have to drive more and more technology indoors. The other thing that happens though, that, that is really beneficial is you can recycle and use all the water. So one of the ways we're going to, there's going to be water shortages all over the world in the future, but the way we're going to solve it is not desalinization or some of these other technologies that are very, very costly. Ultimately it's going to be reusing the water. So we're going to go to a gray water system where in your house, you flush the toilet and it goes through a whole clear purification process and ultimately can become drinking water again. It sounds gross um, 
on the face of it, but it, it's actively used in parts of the world. And I think ultimately that's where the whole world is going. Mm. Well, that's, that's illegal now in most places, right? Like you, you can't get uh, permits if you want to even use your, your, you know, your shower water to, Probably. Uh, to, cl- to, to uh, flush your toilet or your bath water to, you know, water, water the garden. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, but it's right now it's used primarily in remote areas when there's construction going on or something. You have to create uh, a, a flow system. But there are people that have built houses that completely recycle their water, and they, you know, it goes through. They have these all these different um, area uh, processes that it goes through. Some of which are agricultural in nature, like it goes through like a little swamp area, and etc. And then ultimately becomes clean drinking water again. Um, but that long term is probably going to be the solution to a lot of these problems because we're not going to have clean water. And, and certain places aren't going to be as affected as others. You know, in Chicago, we have this huge, massive Lake Michigan right next to us. So we can pull water very easily. But when you only have salt water next to you and you don't have an aquifer underneath you anymore, and you're limited to how much water can come from the Colorado River, you know, somebody like LA is in longer term trouble. Yeah, it seems like, you know, um, we've forgotten how to live within our budgets, right? Whether it's yeah, a solar exactly. budget, right? So, so we have to go dig up the, 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 the solar energy that's, you know, underground in the form of, of petroleum products. And we can't live within our water budget. So we've got to suck the aquifers dry. So does that mean we're going to, you know, is it, is it okay if we like, you know, do less, make less, produce less? Um, or, or does, does the, the logic of all this investment in capitalism mean we, we have to keep like increasing? Um, it's an interesting question. I, I've heard it debated before. We're, we're very focused on growth from an economic standpoint. And the reason we are is because it creates jobs, right? And so you can satisfy more of the population. Um, growth is a detriment to the environment, though. And so you have to make sure that you can do sustainable growth. I think one of the things that's really interesting about indoor agriculture, though, to, is that you could produce more food in less space um, with recycled water without chemicals. And ultimately, if you use solar or wind as your energy source with renewable energy, that's a pretty interesting system um, that's completely contained and very sustainable without using up a lot of the earth's resources. So I think there are certain elements where we really want to foster these things because they have such benefit and by the way, they're local too, possibly. So, or more local than shipping everything from California. Mm. So it's 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 an interesting time in the agricultural space for sure. Yeah. Do we still get uh, like terroir, like you know, f- rapes from the Champagne region, or is is it going to turn all food into um, industrialized commodities? Well, I think that uh, it depends on how much water. A- a crop or a tree requires. I think grapes actually like dry weather. So they're probably do pretty well from California for a while and olives both kind of keep pretty dry. Um, 
almonds are a question because right now 80% of the almond crop comes out of California. So in essence, and they take a lot of water. And so in essence, they're exporting water out of California in the shape of almonds all over the world. Um, but then also just, you know, like dairy is a big um, industry in California. That makes zero sense at all to get a really water intensive industry that could be done all over the country. I mean, it's obviously really efficient in a Wisconsin and in Illinois and places in the Midwest where there's no water issues at all. You should not be raising dairy in California. That's absurd. Mm. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about um, cool beans. Sure. So <laughs> there, there are, so you started this idea like 2018, you said, yeah, so we were developing the products for about a year and a half and getting our distribution lined up and our manufacturing and all those things and our trademarks and et cetera. So we actually launched into the market where people could actually buy our product in the second quarter of 2020. Right. So in, so, in tw- so around 2018, you were figuring out like, what can we make for this market segment for people like you who want to go more plant-based and want to want it to taste good and be convenient and be real food. Yeah. Um, what, and to be honest with you, you, we, when we started this, we didn't know if it was possible. I mean, I knew I was making something and I was wrapping it and freezing it, but it was a far cry from our products. It's not something you could sell on the market. Um, and so we gave our food scientists some really clear parameters. We said, look, we want this to be whole food ingredients. We want you to cut it open And we want you to be able to actually see the beans and the veggies and the whole grains. And we want it, we don't want it to be mushy inside. So we really want it to be more spice driven for flavors. Um, And we want you to use no oil and no sugar added. And she was like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. And so she started experimenting and trying and we ultimately have do have a very little bit of oil in the product, primarily in the wrap, because we have a gluten-free wrap and you have to be able to have that bind. Um, we, we couldn't find a good gluten-free wrap on the market. And so we ended up making our own with our co-packer. And so there is a little bit of oil there. And one of our SKUs has a little bit of oil in the, in the tikka masala because it, uh, you know, it's for the, with the flavoring, but they end up having almost two of them have no saturated fat. And I think tikka masala has a tiny bit primarily from coconut milk. Um, but, and we have like one gram of sugar added in, in the product. So it's very, very minimally, uh, very clean label. And then the product, the, the beans and the whole grains are obviously cooked because you have to cook those in water, whether it's rice or it's beans, et cetera, they have to be cooked. And then they're flash frozen. And the, the vegetables that are in there are actually not cooked. They're just flash frozen. And all of this is cold blended together and then rolled into wraps that are then flash frozen as a unit. And so when you cook the product, you're actually finishing the, when you put it in the microwave, you're finishing the cooking process. So it's very, very minimally processed, but using a cryogenic flash freezing process. And the advantages of that is really fast flash freezing where it freezes extremely fast means very small particles of ice water. Um, 
And so it doesn't destroy the actual cells. So it can, keeps the same consistency and taste that it had when before you froze it. Um, and that's why frozen blueberries, when you thaw them, taste so much better than fresh blueberries. It's because they flash frozen the value, whereas fresh blueberries have probably come from Mexico or California. They've traveled for three weeks. They've been sprayed with chemicals so that they last longer. And by the time you get them, they're very close to molding. They're, you know, they've only got like a week left of shelf life. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so I get that you, you know, you had to solve a whole bunch of technological challenges that you weren't sure that you could solve. But before you went there, like, what did you, what kind of uh, market research did you do to assess, like, do, are people going to want this? Did you just look and see, oh, there's, it's a very, very popular category with, you know, with oil and animal products. And so we, we assume people will want this or did you. Like how, you know, yeah. how did you do your anthropology? No, that's a very good question. We did, we certainly did a, a lot of market research as to the approximate number of people that were eating whole food plant-based. Um, how many, we knew the, the kind of the clean, clean ingredient movement and how that was growing. Um, and then we talked to a lot of people in the industry and did survey data um, with a group of folks to try to get a sense for if they would be interested in this product um, and got some pretty good and, and their purchase intent on that. So, so we did some surveying work, but you never completely know. And really ultimately it was going to come down to taste. So the, really the first, before we did any of that, we first said, can we create a product that tastes great that has these characteristics? And our food scientist went off. She came back with 10 products um, which we taste tested and we were all blown away. I mean, she exceeded our expectations. There were probably out of that first batch, there were probably five or six flavors we, we really liked, but we ultimately narrowed down to, we only wanted to come out with three because one of the, it was pretty funny. My, my partner who co-founded the company, you know, seed funded with me said, what are the most common mistakes you see as a private equity investor in the food space, and let's not make those. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. So, and one of those was that people often get way too many SKUs way too early. So really you need a hero product that's gonna run, but you don't wanna have 25 different SKUs because you're a small company and you can't make all that stuff economically while you're small. So we really wanted to launch with just three SKUs. We're introducing two more this year, but then we'll only have five SKUs and that's it um, for now, obviously. Um, so that was a big part of what we did. We narrowed to the three SKUs and we have one hot, one spicy, one medium and one not mild, you know, that isn't spicy at all. Actually, it's savory. Um, so and, and once we knew we had the products, then we started doing some of this survey data to make sure people would buy it. And, and we started taste testing with people and people were amazed and loved it. And that's, that's the really gratifying thing. We've been to a lot of trade shows and testing and, and we've put free product in people's mouths through different programs and the reviews come back super excited about the company and, and very complimentary of the product, probably 80% of the people that try it really love it. 
and maybe another 10% like it, but not necessarily something they'd buy. Um, so that was really high returns because I've seen a lot of products and um, people can launch a product with only 50 and 60% of the people liking the taste because it's not, not necessarily going to be for everybody. But we were really pleased that so many people love the taste. Gotcha. And how did you decide um, like how to package it in terms of like, you know, are they for individual, like eight packs, like when, yeah. you know, sell them at Costco? How did, how did you, how did you figure out how people were going to use and interact with the product? Yeah. So we have, um, ours are individually wrapped. We, there's, there's a whole market for handhelds and we, we didn't really veer from the, the strategy that's out there right now, which is you market the product in individually wrapped units and it's sold in a case that has a front label that can make it very easy for the retailer to just slide that case in. And that is the, the front that, that consumers see. And then they just reach into the case and grab one. Um, so there's, a, and all the shelves are made for that right height for that case. So we really just needed to work within the parameters that were already set for the handheld category. Um, so we have 12 units per case as does everybody else. Um, and the retailer buys a case from their distributor and then just puts it right on the shelf. Gotcha. And is, uh, is that shelf space extremely competitive in, in oh, most yeah. supermarkets? Yeah, yeah in, er in every aspect of the store or every part of the store, it's competitive. That's the nature of the beast. And um, so we've focused on independent and natural food stores and chains and in essence, what, what you have to do is you, you, you speak to a buyer, you provide your pitch, you send them samples, and then they, when, and, and they only look at a category once a year, sometimes twice. And they'll look at it at that point in time. They'll bring in all the products that want to get on shelf, compare them against what they have already, and if you have a differentiated niche that they think makes sense, they like the taste of the product, then they'll come back to you and say, yeah, we'd like to bring you in. Now let's talk about pricing. Then you negotiate pricing, you negotiate some kind of a slotting fee to get on shelf, um, which is usually some free product that you provide to them. That they get to sell, you know, for at pure profit and, uh, and the promotions that you'll do during the year. And you negotiate all those things out. And then once they say yes, then you set the time for the reset. And that's when you're actually going to go on shelf. So you might do all this process. This might take you six months talking to the buyer, doing all of this. And then they're going to reset the shelf three months from now. So it might be nine months from the beginning of talking to a retailer to the point you actually get on shelf. It's a very long sales cycle. Hmm. What kind of due diligence does, does the buyer do to make sure you're going to be around in nine months or you actually have the capacity to, to produce and, and deliver all that stuff? So they care very much um, about you being able to deliver product and get, you know, meet their needs so that you don't, they don't have empty shelves. 
So they want to know who your supplier distributors are. And they typically, a grocery chain will, most of them work with one exclusive distributor, whether it's KE or UNFI um, in the natural mm -hmm. space. Sometimes they work with both, but they'll want to know that you have, have distribution with those folks. If you're not in their DC, that's not usually a problem if they're big enough, because if they have enough doors, if they have enough stores, they'll, they'll bring that product into the, that K here or UNFI DC. But it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Whether you're going to be in business or not is not quite as important to them as you would think. And the reason being, they've got their slotting fee up front from you. And if you go out of business, um, they'll just replace you with somebody else and make that person pay a slotting fee to take the shelf space over. Huh. So they don't do a lot of due diligence on a company's financial wherewithal or whatnot, because ultimately they're selling the shelf space. And if you can't produce, if you ultimately can't put the product on the shelf, they'll just put somebody else in there. Gotcha. Gotcha. So given, given what you knew and thought and believed about the market, what, what are some of the things you think about in terms of marketing? And I don't, I don't know what even what that involves, whether you did, you know, whether it was all um, just, you know, going to, to shows or, you know, certainly like the packaging and colors and font and, and words yeah. that appear on, whether there were any, you know, commercials or ads or flyers. Like what, what, what was the message that you wanted to go to market with to, to both differentiate and to communicate this, you know, a value proposition and also, you know, maybe was it, was it all about like this tastes great, it's convenient, or are you saving the planet? Like, how did you think about how to talk about it? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of to unpack in those questions for sure that um, first of all, from our overall message, we were very focused on this idea of clean, whole, whole food ingredients, minimally processed, and revolving around the bean, trying to make beans cool again, if you will. Um, because the bean is a fascinating superfood that seems the whole world has forgotten about. Um, beans are amazing for, as from a human health standpoint. Our gut needs high fiber foods like beans, um, to foster the good bacteria that's deep in your colon and your intestinal tract. And beans don't get digested in your stomach, so they make it down into your intestines and colon, and that's where they then feed those good bacteria. And the only foods that have fiber are plant-based foods. Meat and dairy don't have any fiber, and you need a wide variety of fiber to be your optimal health for, from an immune, immune standpoint. So your gut, which is your lower intestine and your colon, they control your immunity, your um, mental health, because that's where 90% of your serotonin is created in the gut lining and what you crave to eat. So you ultimately weight loss. If you want to lose weight, you need to be eating high fiber foods and 95% of Americans don't get enough fiber. So already out of the box, the world is, you know, doing it wrong. And so we were very focused on high fiber foods. Um, we also wanted a diversity of plants in our food. And we were coming to it from the agricultural angle in that we wanted 
we wanted to foster a wide variety of crops so that farmers would grow a lot of other crops versus just monoculture corn and soybean and what they've been doing, you know, primarily to feed animals. Mm. And so we were, we wanted a diversity of crops. Well, it turns out we found after the fact, Dr. Will Bolsovitz um, released his book, Fiber Fueled. And in that he talks about the benefit of a diversity of plants for your gut, that it's really important to try to eat 30, 30 different plants per week. And so that was, you know, we've latched onto that because that's really the whole key to our product. The first three wraps had 17 different plants that were key ingredients. And then our five skews, once we launch the other two, will have 24 plants. So you can get almost to that full 30 just eating our burritos each week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're, very, we're very, very focused on that diversity. Um, and then with regard to some of the other elements you talked about, so we wanted, we knew the name Cool Beans. We, we were able to, to um, trademark that name. And we knew that it had kind of a fun, hippie vibe. It was a big name, big term in the 60s. And then it kind of has a, had a resurgence. And so we thought, let's, let's latch onto that. And let's really focus around that. So if you notice our, our branding is surfer focused and um, certainly climate and kind of a, a little bit of a 60s colorful feel to it. Uh, and that was, that was an important and certainly by design. And then with regard to the packaging itself, one of the key elements that was two elements really that were very much important to us going in. Number one, everybody else in the burrito set was primarily dark colors. So we, we thought by having a white package, we would stand out on shelf and jump out so people would notice us. Mm. Secondly, we wanted the ingredients on the front of the package, much like RX bar and happy to copy that. I mean, we love what they did. Um, and really the reason is we wanted to pull people's attention to the fact, yep, we've got whole food ingredients. See right here, here they are listed. These are the first five ingredients. And so that was really important to us. So we, we did that as well from a packaging perspective. And then there's a whole nother, I don't know if you want to go into it, but there's a whole nother element talking about how we're going to market because in COVID it's changed dramatically. Oh yeah. Let's uh, tell me about that. Yeah. So you had talked about kind of getting the stores resets. First of all, most of 2020, those were put on hold. Most retailers couldn't even keep product on shelf because of the pandemic. And so they didn't want to bring new different products in. So we were very lucky to get into 600 stores during the first year, 650, um, because it was really hard to get even meetings. Um, We're now up to about 900 stores. We've added several this year. It's become much um, more open during 2021, which is good. But again, a lot of that still takes a long time. So it'll probably be more impactful in the second half of the year. So that was a big element right out of the box that you had to, you know, you were going to go into less stores just because less were taking resets. But secondly, the way that brands go to market changed dramatically because it used to be that a new brand, your playbook was to get discovered, you had to do a lot of demoing in store. And you'd have to have people out in the stores 
handing out free product. Really expensive. It can be very beneficial, but it's a, um, it, it's a, it's a highly wasteful process because you're giving around a lot of product that's to people that are never going to ever eat your product and they're not self-selecting. It's just who's walking by, but it's been the playbook forever. Well, the playbook has kind of changed in 2020 and 2021 as a result of the pandemic. And now there's several companies sprouting up that do digital demoing. And ultimately I think that might be a better, better model long-term we'll see but I'm not sure how much demoing is going to come back. It certainly will be a places like Costco, which, which relies on it heavily. You have to do demoing with them, but I don't know if every grocery store is going to have a lot of people demoing every weekend. Like they did in the past. What's, what's, what's a digital demo that people have to raise their hand and say, yes, yeah. I want you to send it to me. So there are groups, um, social nature, field agent, a couple others that basically build these large cohorts of people that opt in to receive free product if they meet certain criteria. And so you might opt, you might sign up at social nature to be a tester, if you will. And then you fill out something about your diet. Like I only eat vegetarian or I'm paleo or I'm keto or, or I'm vegan, whatever it is. You fill that out and then they show you products that fit your diet. And then you uh-huh. click on the ones that you want to try. And you might click on 30 of them, but then you might not be in an area where there is a location that that company sells in. So like we were primarily sending people to Sprouts um, during the first year and if you weren't near a Sprouts location, you couldn't have opted into the pro. I mean, you could opt it in, but you wouldn't be picked as one of the people to get the free coupon. And then they send the coupons in the mail to people and they go into the store and they buy them and or, or get the product. And then there's usually coupons for additional product to try as well if you want to try other flavors. But it's a way to have self-selected people try your product that eat in the kind of diet that you like. So it's a much more target focused demoing system than just standing in a Whole Foods and handing out samples for three hours. Right. And and only having 10 people of that even like your product, even want to buy your product or think about your product. So, so the consumer who signs up on social nature field agent, are there, are they obligated or requested to like give you feedback or to tell five people so if you're, uh, yeah, everybody runs their system a little bit different, but you typically, if you're going to, once you opt in, then you have to fill out a brief little survey about, um, you know, where you buy products, et cetera, et cetera. And then after you try the product, you have to fill out a little survey and which gives some feedback as to whether you liked it, how easy was it to find things like that? Would you buy it again? Uh, so the, so the brand gets some nice feedback. Uh, and they also then get a little more detail of their consumers when they want to send them other products. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, you, you say so you have three SKUs right now, and for, for lack of a better word, they all like 
scream ethnic, right? Like, like you know, Moroccan. Yes. Or like, was was that what 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 went into that decision? Because you know, you could have yeah. like had those spice blends and not called them, you know, tikka masala or like you know, kind of signal. Yeah, that they- it's a it's a good question. There were a couple of things that played into that. Number one, when I was cooking vegan foods, a lot of the a lot of the vegan recipes and vegan foods and things like that do happen to have ethnic ethnic kind of flavorings. And and part of that is because if you think about places that have been vegetarian vegan for a very long time, a lot of those are in parts of the world like India and you know Thai cuisine has always had vegan options and things like that. So that was one piece of it. Number two, we did a lot of research and international flavors. So if you think about millennials and Generation Z, they're much more focused on international flavors and international, uh, you know, uh, flavor designs, unique palate, tastes, etc. World cuisine. Um, so that was important. And then if you look, if we we also looked at the competitor set, and some of those folks were really focused on traditional Mexican food or um, American comfort food and things like that. And so we wanted to differentiate from that as well. Gotcha. All right. So now you see you're in about 900 stores, uh, including, you know, so Sprouts is a pretty big national chain. Um, where can, where should people go look if they want to try? Yeah. Cool beans? Well, the easiest way is to go to our website, eatcoolbeans.com. And you can find our store locator and they'll tell you all the stores in your area with, you know, within a, I think you can filter from 10 mile to 50 mile radius. Uh, As far as big chains, we're in Sprouts has about 350 stores in the country. Wegmans is in the Pacific North. I mean, is is in the um, Northeast and they have about, um, they have a hundred stores. I think we're in 90 of them. Well, we um, we just got our first Wegmans down here in North Carolina. Uh, oh, they're amazing uh, stores. Four months they? ago. Yeah, <laughs> you you could get lost in a Wegmans. Yeah, I've um, I wish we had them here in Chicago. They're they're amazing stores. Um, so, and then in certain areas like Deerberg's in St. Louis, we're in, and um, in High V, and then the Pacific Northwest. We've just gone into Market of Choice. Um, PCC and Huckleberries. And we're in a lot of smaller regional chains like a Lenardi's in California, um, Foxtrot in Chicago and Washington, D.C., which is kind of a more like a convenience what, type store. What about what about small local co-ops and health food stores? Yes, and we're in a lot of those around the country as well. And those are all on our store locator. And some of those are our, some of our best stores. We do really well in college towns in particular uh, in those independent grocers with a lot of so so i gotta ask you about the 800 pound gorilla (laughs) whole foods yeah so we are not in their national program which is probably frankly good because um, 450 stores across the country without a regional focus would be a big nut that'd be hard to market to while we don't have much brand awareness we're trying to build our brand awareness right now Um, so we are in close talks with um, a couple regions of Whole Foods. And we hope to go into, you can go into up to three regions before you become a national account. And so we hope to get into three regions over the next year and be in those Whole Foods. 
gotcha. but we're not currently. Gotcha. Cool. Well, this I, um, this has been really fascinating. I love I love how open you've been around the sort of the you know the, the nuts and bolts of of starting this business and what it's like. And because you know I think every, pretty much everyone who goes plant based who becomes a little bit of a foodie gets a food idea. Right. <laughs> so, so one of the things I'm sure I'm sure you've discouraged a lot of people for whom it's a good thing that they're not gonna they're you know they're not gonna think about hey I make a really good salsa so I'm gonna go like you know people say they like it so I'm gonna sell it that it really does require yeah. um, a long term commitment and a team of people with with great expertise. Yeah, and you have you to have like, a di- differentiated niche because you can't go up against the big guys without something that really sets you apart from the others. So that's, I mean, I've certainly seen a lot of ideas and heard and had other ideas in the past, but you know, if it's just another, just because it's a great tasting product does not mean that you can go into the market and succeed. You really have to have some kind of a differentiation that makes people want to, because typically you're going to be a little bit more in cost and want people want to pay more to buy your product or, um, rather than the thing they've always bought. Right. And I also, you know, love that this has been, you know, a labor of, um, of planetary responsibility as well. Look, do the research you did on the 16 to 19% of the uh, uh, food industry's contribution to greenhouse gases to um, this incredible work around indoor ag um, yeah. So, you know, it gives it gives me it gives me hope that there's that there is a form of of enlightened investment that can that can move us in in positive directions. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And ultimately we want to be a carbon neutral company. We're kind of starting the process to learn about that. Um but one of the things we just recently did an inf- infographic and I'll just throw this out as a shout out to the team. Um we looked at the our our spicy chipotle burrito versus the leading beef and cheese burrito on the market. And ours has 92, there's a site you can go to called my, my missions.com, which taught you can compare your food diet on in the emissions of your food diet. And when you compare those, our burrito has 92% less greenhouse gas emissions than that leading burrito. So that to us is a real validation of what we've tried to build here um, from a sustainable future. Beautiful. All right. Well, um, anything you, uh, you, you want to add that I haven't been asked about? No, I think this has been fun. We've talked to, covered a lot of different categories and I've really enjoyed talking to you and, and uh, I, I, think it, I think it came out well. Awesome. Well, Tyler Mayoris, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for uh, for your your leadership in making the world a a healthier and yummier place. And thanks for taking the time today. Thank you, Howard. I appreciate it. It's very nice to meet you. All right. That was a lot to chew on. You can check out the links in the show notes, which is plantyourself.com slash 469. Um, it's kind of interesting. I checked out those so sites where you can kind of become a, a, a shopper, a consumer, the field agent in social nature. So there's links where if you want to sign up for that and start getting goodies. Um, and also I linked to those um, crowdfunded investment sites, the WeFunder and Republic.co and the other one. So you can check all that out as well. 
Um, something I want to talk about, I got a, um, a really wonderful, lovely, generous offer from a longtime podcast listener, um, Marion Blum, who has noticed that a lot of my guests have been saying things like, wow, that was a really great question. Wow, I'm so glad you asked me that. Wow, that's fascinating. And she kind of wanted to um, have me brag about that. And offered, in fact, to kind of put together this little compendium of moments when uh, my podcast guests have responded positively to the conversation. And she's looking for people to help out, to maybe go back and listen to an episode and, um, you know, mark, do sort of a timestamp at that moment um, where where someone says something nice. I think that's that's Lovely. It really touched my heart. If you'd like to go back and listen to an episode and, and kind of help out with this uh, crowdsourced project, you can get in touch with Marion directly at support at bloomingwellness.com. And that's blooming, B-L-U-M-I-N-G. So support at bloomingwellness.com. Send her an email and she will um, put you to work. So uh, thanks for considering that. All right, so in uh, running news or movement news, this is the last week of my uh, monkey bar challenge, lifting all those weights. Man, my hands have, uh, my calluses are getting calluses. Uh, I discovered liquid chalk, which is this um, liquid, I guess, that you uh, squirt a little bit on your hands and it acts like a, um, well, chalk, so that you uh, the kettlebells don't slip. There was a point in the kettlebell training last week where I really was concerned, I was sweating so badly that it was going to kind of fly through the wall, through a window. Um, so this liquid chalk seems to have done the trick there. Uh, I think I'm going to take about a week, a week and a half off of that heavy stuff, just sort of recover and start getting back into more running, but uh, probably not on roads, but uh, grass and trails. So in uh, in prepping for the uh, ultimate championships, ultimate frisbee in the uh, middle of July, I'm going to be doing a lot more sprinting. So that's that's the goal there. And a big shout out to uh, Zero Shoes with an X. Uh, Stephen Sashin, I, uh, I, I wrote to him and said, uh, listen, all these cleats, the football, soccer, lacrosse, are all really hurting my feet. Can you recommend a cleat for uh, for those of us who want our shoes to look like our feet, to be natural, to give us space to move? And uh, I was thinking he would say, you know, well, there's this brand, maybe New Balance has one. But he actually recommended one of his own shoes, which is actually a water shoe. And he said it's, it's pretty grippy. And uh, so far I've played in them twice, and uh, he's right. So uh, very, very happy to uh, to come home without because after that tournament a couple weeks ago um in uh, in the Ar- under armor high top football cleats um i had bruises on uh, on my my second toes which are the long ones which makes me something of a freak i suppose um in garden news we got blueberries we got about a quarter cup of blueberries yesterday very exciting and the basil is going gangbusters and we have uh, rabbits and deer and groundhog and all that fencing I put up um, last year. They figured out how to get around it. So I guess we're just sharing. And uh, we also got a bunch of uh, sweet potato slips and the onions and garlic might be ready soon. And um, I'm, having, I'm pretty hopeful for, for grapes and peanuts as well. 
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullage, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.